reading all of these and really diving into them is for me, I think what it took to pass from kind of the, oh, that's interesting to this is something that deeply connects with me enough to change my behavior. And that's a hard thing to get to. This is the Wildfire Lessons Podcast. Our goal is to promote learning by revealing the complexity and risk in the wildland fire environment. We share the lessons. The learning that follows is up to you. Hi, I'm Kelly Woods, Director of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center. On today's podcast, I sit down with Eric Applin to visit about his analysis of the entrapment reports posted in our Wildland Fire Lessons Learn Center Incident Review Database. Throughout the podcast, you'll hear Eric mention multiple reports, some of which you may have read and others of which may be new to you. Either way, Eric has read them all and offers some unique conclusions, lessons, and perspective. My advice as you listen is to take note of some of the incidents so you can look them up in our incident review database for further study. To find our IRDB, visit our website, wildfirelessons.net. Let's listen to my chat with Eric and see if there are any surprises for you in the conversation. Hey, Eric, uh, thanks for joining us today to to talk a little bit about what you've been doing, what kind of research, what kind of deep dive into our incident review database and some of the cool stuff you've been finding. So appreciate you being here. Why don't we start with you telling us who you are and, and how you got here? Yeah, great. Hey, Kelly. Uh, yeah, it's really nice to be here, uh, be able to talk about this. Uh, my name is Eric Appland. I started my fire career in, in 2005 uh, at Lassen National Park up in Northern California and uh, kind of as a temp wandered around the West a little bit until I came back to, to California in, um, a few, well, 10 years ago, I guess at this point. And now I'm a, a permanent um, fuels tech on the Plumas National Forest up in, in Northern California. But this summer, I've been a um, field operations specialist uh, detailed to the Lessons Learned Center and uh, this looking into these entrapment reports that we have housed on our uh, incident review database has been kind of a project I've been working on for majority of the summer so far. It's been awesome to have you. We've loved having you on our on our staff and getting your perspective. And this project has been pretty cool. And really, it just, you know, the the assignment was to go through our incident review database and look at all of the entrapments that we have on there, uh, any reports that we have that are tagged with entrapments or as entrapments. So that means starting the instance you looked at, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, start at about 1910 and go through, you know, 2020, all of those, those things. And so you're sitting in this really cool, unique position where you've read those reports all in this, you know, 120 day detail. And it's been so fun to listen to you talk about some of your findings and some of the things you've seen. So it just made sense. Let's sit down and let's do a podcast. Let's have some fun. Let's pull some of the the details out and, you know, talk about some events that maybe we don't even aren't at all on our radar as a community because they happened so long ago, but might have some really valuable lessons. So I appreciate you. I mean, that simple assignment, go through the IRDB and look at entrapments. You've taken it and just run with it. And it's been so awesome. So I'm I'm excited to to have you share some of what you learned. So let's let's dive in. What are some of the things you found? So like you said, it starts the the database, the first entrapment that's that's mentioned on there is 1910, the, the Great Idaho Fire, the big blow up. Um, and then from there, it's it's very sparse until you get into the 1960s. And, and then it really picks up in the 70s. And, and it's kind of exponential from then. But there's a few things that seem to come out of it, for me anyway. And they're interesting because some of them are very sort of uh, detailed, sort of small day-to-day type of, of issues, and then some of them are much, much larger. So one of them that really came out for me was the evolution of, of our personal protective equipment and how that started, you know, where people were basically wearing what loggers wore at, the, at that time, right? In yeah. 1910 especially, right? Yeah. Filson kind of stuff or whatever, if they could afford yeah. it. 
And then, so there's, so there's that piece of it, right? And then, of course, the, the fire shelter as, as a part of that that came later. Then there's things like the issues that, that would come up in these reports, usually starting more around the 60s and 70s, that are still issues now or are things that we seem to have finally started to address, even in my, the 15 years of my career, uh, the last 15 years. There's how these reports have changed and how variable they are. Because I think there's a um, kind of a, an assumption that the older reports are a certain way, the newer reports are a different way, right? But that's not actually really true. They're kind of, it really, I think, depended on who was writing it and what their directives were. And, and there are some old older reports from the 60s and 70s that, that say some things that are, are really surprising that are said in different terminology than we would use now, but are definitely things that that we could say now and have the same sort of sensitivity to things like mental health and personal well-being, that kind of stuff that that we kind of talk a lot more about now and I think aren't we don't think about being in the seventies. So there's there's just a wide variety of, of different things that that come up and it's been really fascinating to see this. Let's kind of dive a little bit more into the reports initially. I, I, I definitely want to talk about the PPE thing because I think that's something that's pretty fascinating and, um, you know, looking at that evolution. But, you know, at the Lessons Learned Center, of course, we're, we like to, to look at the reports. We like to look at how the learning culture has grown and evolved. And a huge piece of that is how reports have evolved. So, dive in a little bit more, give me some more details on like what you might have seen in, you know, early reports, whatever, pick a decade up until, you know, like maybe what was going on in the 90s versus what we're seeing now. Give us, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Starting with 1910, that first 50 years from 1910 to 1960, there are only 13 reports that are, that are in there. Obviously, there were many more entrapments than that in those 50 years. And those early ones are very factual. They're, like I said, they're very variable. You really can't tell exactly what it's going to say. I mean, what's fascinating about them to me is that there really are a, a pretty interesting window into what it looked like to fight fire in, that, in the first 50 years, basically, of since the, the big blow up and how, how different truly different it was then versus even even in the 60s and 70s and certainly now. In, like in what ways? What are well, some? Right. So, you know, the only organized type of crews that seemed to exist at that time were like the C's, right? The CCC program in the 1930s. Um, otherwise, it was kind of, you know, ranchers would show up or, or they'd have some loggers that were nearby and they'd come over. Um, very little sort of existing organization. And, uh, you know, these were times when these land management agencies existed, but they didn't really have much in, as far as an existing organization. And so if you think about something like that, you know, we may have had at that time different kinds of fire safety training where, you know, I think don't go above a fire, uh, don't be downwind of a fire, that, that sort of thing, or have a safe place that you can escape to. Those are those go back decades and decades. Those kinds of themes without calling it LCES or... Yeah, or yeah. having 10 and 18 and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But, you know, if you're a logger or a rancher who lives nearby or whatever the case, you probably haven't had any of that kind of training. You may think you know some things intuitively, but that's probably the extent of it, right? So the, some of the things that, that happened were... Yeah, I mean, sort of shocking in a way, you know, like the Griffith Park fire, right? And I think it was 1933 down in LA County. It was, a, it was I think, one of the largest um, fatality fires in, in uh, US history, at least of firefighters after 1910, probably. And I think, you know, largely because I think there wasn't really much of an organized firefighting force at that, at that time. It's fascinating to hear you bring up Griffith Park fire. And, you know, I how many people have studied that or looked at that or even know that that fire took place? It's kind of an interesting thing because it goes back into, you know, the several decades ago. And I that's pretty interesting that you can say it's got that many fatalities. And, you know, I'm this is my 30th fire season and I'm going, huh, OK, I better look that one up. You know, you know, it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, that was definitely been the case with me as well. There's been things like I've heard of Griffith Park. Right. That's it. That's all yeah. I knew about it. I'd heard it, 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 that it had happened. But 
uh, I didn't know really anything about it at all. And that, and there are fires in there that I didn't even know they happened. Never heard their name before. Yeah. You know, pretty major fires. But to get back to the the report thing, um, so that was kind of the first part. The first fifty years, you know, is sort of it's hit or miss. There's huge things that probably happen that are lost to history unless somebody decided to write it down. And then there's kind of a period in the '60s and and getting into the '70s when it's kind of hard to categorize it. It's certainly not the, it's not the kind of rules focused sort of reports that that came a little bit later. That that stuff is in there, you know, a focus on once they had developed a ten and thirteen at the time. Once they had developed that, then there is reference to those things. Mm-hmm. But often um, there are some of these reports that really do look at. They wouldn't call it human factors, but they they talk about those types of of things. And look more sort of more deeply, or or try to question more deeply, like why why do these things keep happening, and what can we do as an organization to uh, to change that? Whether it's the Forest Service or a lot of stuff came out of the state of California during that time, but it doesn't really matter. You know, depending uh, the agency doesn't necessarily matter. There was kind of a focus on sort of systemic change versus really rules based stuff. I'm curious, Eric, did you, you know, some of those things that started getting highlighted in reports, are there some of them things that we as a culture have found some resolution to? Are some, or are some of those things, things that still linger today that we still grapple with how to address? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. So both, right. I think, so there's the PPE part, right? That, that, that is very, very slowly is instituted you know the the bringing there's mentions of fire of flame resistant clothing right and then that those mentions start in the 1960s and it and you see it for 10 years at the same with fire shelters it it starts in the 1960s and you see it for 10 years that maybe we would have had a different outcome here if if these people had been carrying fire shelters but at the time they weren't required they may not have even had access to them at all right But there's a lot of reference earlier than I would have thought about things like work to rest guidelines. Uh, I thought that was a newer kind of uh, guideline than, than it is, uh, something that's been around for, for quite a while. It's, I think it's mentioned in the Butte Fire Report, um, which was a fire in Idaho in, in 1985. It's, I believe it's mentioned in there, but it's certainly mentioned around that time. And that continually comes up. The use of hospital liaisons, there was a fire uh, in the state of California in the early 1970s, which I believe was the first time it's mentioned that wow. somebody, yeah, it was really cool, um, where they assigned a battalion chief to be at the hospital every day with a burned firefighter, be there for the family and be a liaison between the hospital and the family. It's really, it's really cool to see that. Yeah, that's a lot earlier than I would have speculated that that kind of concept would be implemented, addressed and implemented. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then as far as stuff that's brought up and then not fully addressed, say, there's a lot of that. The biggest one, I think the most surprising one for me was finding a reference in a report in a fire called the the Mac 2 fire, which which happened either right adjacent to the San Bernardino National Forest or on the forest. I, I can't remember, but right up next to it down there in Southern California in 1971. And they mention in the report, in fact, it's a pretty significant bulk of the report. They mention how at that time, the U.S. Forest Service was, and particularly the Pacific Southwest region, California, was having a hard time competing with county fire departments. And at that time, the California Department of Forestry, CDF, competing for employees because of their working conditions the state of uh, housing that the that the Forest Service could provide for people and pay, that they were not competitive at that Isn't time. Isn't that fascinating? 1971, that's identified in a report. And we certainly are still grappling with that one, right? right? It's, it's, it's a big one right <laughs> it now. It is. Yeah. 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 So that that was, I was, I was shocked to see that. And they really do delve into it in pretty great detail oh, to this, to the extent that they even have photos comparing bunk houses on the San Bernardino versus what the what the state had. It's it's really amazing how they took it really seriously. <laughs> That's very very interesting. 
Anything else with reports that... uh... Yeah, so the big thing that I think people talk about with these reports um, is that there was this period of time up until the early to mid-2000s, and there was a, a lot of work done at that time with people who were very serious about developing, you know, a sort of a safety culture, right, where that was not punitive. And before that, you know, obviously, there's a reason why that happened. And and there are there are things that, that were written in the 80s and 90s that are shocking to read. How... Uh, you mean from like a punitive standpoint, like... Yeah, like how... Uh, judgmental, I guess, would be the word that I would use. And, and it's it's really um, it's the very calling kind of calling people out sometimes almost by name in very harsh terms. It's certainly not anything that you would see now. Yeah. Focusing on one person was the at fault for this whole thing rather than looking at the collective organization and how what happened and what can we learn from it really about assigning blame and moving on kind of scenario yeah, yeah exactly uh, one that one that really uh comes to mind is uh the ship island fire which was in idaho in in 1979 it actually says in that in that report that one of the problems they think is that crews that there was not retribution for crews that didn't produce line and because the thought was we can always catch on the next ridge, so why bother? And I find that hard to believe that anybody actually thought that way. Yeah, that th- that sentence made it into a report. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And in the same report, it says a little bit later on that when the fire was first identified, I believe certainly smoke jumpers flew it. I believe a hell attack crew flew it as well. And both of them separately said they didn't believe the fire should be staffed at all. It's it's a very strange thing. It's almost like they, it's almost like they didn't read their own report because it's, it's so contradictory and all these different things. Yeah. And and then ultimately the 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 firefighter who who passed away on that fire, you know, they have criticism for him as well. And it, it's like I said, it's not it's not the kind of thing that you would see now. Um, and I think in that respect, uh, that's a good thing, a good change that has yeah. come about. Yeah. What are what are your thoughts? Just like I said, you've just read all of these reports in this short time frame. So what are what are your thoughts on reports of, you know, today or the last few years and and how those look? And it seems to me there's more of a, a focus on a narrative, telling a story, you know, looking for opportunities to learn What's your reaction to what the contents look like now and how we can apply them back to the community to learn? So it's often the case that the the newer reports tend to be, in some cases, longer, um, but it's because they look more seriously at things like like human factors. And so there was a, a fire in 2011, um, a Coal Canyon fire in South Dakota, where a, a Type 6 engine got burned over. And in that case, um, there is a long discussion of why there were actually two separate burnovers that were very close to each other, right? And there's a long discussion of why, in the one case, the people who were driving the Type 6 engine decided to go forward rather than back up. Mm -hmm. And that includes even photos of what it would have looked like from their point of view, what it would have looked like out of the the windshield versus the side mirror and why they would have chosen to go forward, which ultimately ended in um, a a pretty uh, narrow draw, mm-hmm. which is where the entrap that that burnover happened. And then on the same fire on the same road, there was a a single firefighter who was standing in the road when there was a sudden flare up, right? Mm-hmm. And rather than move forward, away from that, he laid down in the road, right? Mm-hmm. And there was something similar that happened in the past. And when it happened in the past, it wasn't commented on. It was just, this happened. Yeah. With no explanation as to why, um, really anything. It, it was just sort of, it left sort of inexplicable. Mm-hmm. But in this case, in both the, the case of the engine and then the single firefighter on the road, they really dug into why would you why would you do something that now with hindsight and knowing the outcome we think looks strange 
And I think I think that particular report puts it it very very well why it made sense to do what they did. That's that's pretty awesome because that's one of the things is getting when we look at these reports, we want to be able to suspend our our hindsight bias, right? And look and think about what were they seeing and what did they base their actions on instead of just judging and saying, well, I would never do that. Because how can we ever know what we would do until we're faced with the same situation, seeing the same thing? So yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty cool thing. And, and it takes narrative, right? To get there. You can't, you can't just have bullet statements and say this and this and this, these are the facts of what happened. You need that narrative in there to tell the story, to paint the picture so that the reader, it brings the reader closer to the event to maybe even get an emotional connection to actually learn. And and your emotional connection may still be, I would never do that. That's fine. But you've at least thought about it. You've got more details. And if you find yourself in that scenario, now you almost have it your own slide. It's one from reading and studying, um, but you kind of have a slide and you think, okay, I've thought about this before. This is what I'm going to do, or this is what I'm not what I'm going to do, or this is what I'm, you know, going to avoid doing. So, um, so that's where that narrative is so important. So yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's, it's critically important. And I think that one thing that, um, I've gotten out of this, uh, doing this project is that you really have to take seriously the idea that you're going into this to learn why something happened to people who are basically in your exact shoes. Yeah, professionals with a set of skills, a set of experience on which to base their actions. Why did they have the outcome they had? Right. And whether, even if it looks, even if things look strange now, because our maybe some of our practices are different, um, they were still, you know, in a in a situation where they took, you know, the the slides, right? Like you said, um, they looked at their decision space and they made a decision, and it's exactly the same as you would do now. And I think you have to, you, you do have to spend time with some of these, especially the longer, um, some of the longer ones, because they're in, you know, vast majority of, the, of cases they're long for a reason, and there's really good stuff in there. It just you, you you have to take it seriously to take the time to do it. Yeah. Um, not that you have to read them all, but but if you're going to, you know, try to learn and, and um, um, really derive, you know, hopefully maybe change uh, your um, behavior or train your crew or something like that. Like really, really dive into it and take it seriously. Well, I think that's the you know the the notion of honor through learning, right? We honor all of the members of our community who've, you know, had bad or good outcomes, whatever, you know, by learning from them, studying. And yeah, I definitely um, appreciate that. You know, you mentioned uh, the Ship Island Fire from um, Salmon Child's National Forest, 1979. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I want to kind of launch into some of your findings about PPE. And, uh, you know, as I as I recall from from that fire, firefighter Kyle Petit, you know, lost his life on that fire, getting in his fire shelter without gloves. He had given his gloves away to somebody, got in to the shelter and then couldn't hold down the shelter because it got so hot and he didn't have his gloves. So that just, you know, that fire has always really resonated with me. I, in, in, you know, I remember my own little sketchy scenario in Nevada quite some time ago, but, you know, flying in, in the helicopter, we were going to see if we could take some action on, you know, this big fire outside Battle Mountain and jump out of the helicopter. There were four of us from our crew, take off our flight helmets, shove our flight gloves in the, you know, with our helmets, put them in the, the ship, pilot takes off. Now we turn and we're, we, we're ready to see what we can do to engage, you know, start doing, implementing our plan. We did have a plan when we got on the ground, but the fire behavior changed so quickly. And 
we had to basically, you know, it's kind of started coming at us from a couple of sides and, and the four of us had to make the decision. We just got to find a spot that we can pop through this, just run through the fire, get into the black mm-hmm. is kind of where we were. Mm-hmm. But I remember in my head, Ship Island Fire. I mean, I, I distinctively remember that. I did not have my gloves on because I was in a hurry. You know, I just threw my hard hat on, um, through, you know, tossed that stuff in the aircraft and started to go. My gloves were in my pack because I was a repeller and we didn't have our pa- our gloves outside because we need if we were going to repel, we didn't want our gloves hanging out, right? right? So my gloves were in my pack. And I remember as the four of us were looking for an opportunity to maybe find a break in the flames or or small, you know, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have my gloves. If I end up needing to get into my shelter, this is not going to be good. So it so resonated with me that that story always did. And here I find myself in that situation, right? So, so talk a little bit about PPE, you know, gloves, um, fire resistant clothing, and of course, shelters what what are some of the things you pulled from the reports related to that yeah there's so much in there um i think actually something that uh, having read all of these right and and seeing this this evolution from from just kind of thick cotton clothing to flame resistant clothing um first just the shirt then shirt and pants and then throughout the decades um, especially when often in these in these reports there will be an analysis of, of PP, especially starting maybe in the 1990s, um, and so it, and it will look at how did it do right for further development. And seeing that um, really made me think in a new way, which I was kind of surprised that I had never thought about this before, but of what our PP is actually supposed to do, um, and what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. And and that kind of led me to a really, really great uh, video that's on YouTube of a, he's a fire, or was, I don't, I don't know if he's retired or what, but he was a, a fire captain with LA County. His name is David Leary. And um, he does a, uh, it's a presentation that he's giving to a rookie class where he talks about falling through a roof on a warehouse fire. And he says, the reason why he's here is because he was wearing everything and the only th- and he has all of his pp that he was wearing laid out on the table and he said this is this is what the department issued me i was wearing all of it and he said and all of this all this stuff all it did was buy me some time that's it and i never had thought about it like that before um and you know his big point was he was walking on a roof and all of a sudden he had fallen almost 20 feet into a burning building. It happened instantaneously. And so whatever whatever he was wearing, the moment he fell through the roof is all he was ever going to be wearing. Yeah, he didn't, have time, to, didn't have time to put a shroud on, nope. get his gloves on. It, that was, nope, yeah. All of it. All of it. Um, and I think that's one of the surprising things for me that, that has come out of doing this just personally is that. I've have always definitely been someone who would have the gloves clipped to the pack and with the thought that I could just throw them on when I had when I yeah. if if it ever got hot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I had mine inside my pack. Right, exactly. <laughs> you, know? you had them right somewhere. I had them. Right. Yep, check that box. Yeah. But <laughs> but in reality that's just not true. When fire reaches you uh, or heat or whatever it is, what you're wearing is what you're probably going to be wearing. You're probably not going to have. There are cases, of course, where the, where people have some time and, and sort of watch the fire come. But but in I would say the majority of of cases, it's whatever you've got on is what is all. That's all you're ever going to have on. It's not going to get better. So so that's so that's that part of it. Sort of the flame resistant clothing, the 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 gloves, the fire shelters is a is a really fascinating topic. We could probably do a whole <laughs> podcast just oh, yeah. on that. Huh? Yeah, mul- multiple probably. But one thing that I, I just looked this up to, to, to get a, a real number. And of course, these these reports aren't aren't comprehensive to everything that happened. Well, and I, I think that's an important thing to, for us to always remember in this process is these are the reports we have. You know, somebody took the time to study it, to draft it, to submit it to Lessons Learned. 
that's what the IRDB is. So it, it's not inclusive of every single activity or event or incident that's happened over time. No, no, not by any means. I mean, I, I remember meeting someone in my first fire season who showed me uh, some scarring on his on his wrists from being in an entrapment with a fire shelter. And I, I've never found that in the, in the database. I don't know yeah. where it was or when really. It's interesting. So I, I, in looking, I looked this up, this number, and just in the period of 19, 1985 through 1989, and really there were about 600 fire shelters that Holy were deployed, smokes. <laughs> which is half of the total. What's it, And it's, it's fascinating because they got to such a huge number because during that time, there were these mass shelter deployments of of dozens of people, whole divisions in some cases. Yeah, Butte Fire. Yeah, right? the Butte Fire in '85. Same Lake Lake Mountain Fire, both on the on the Sam in 1985. There were several. 1988 was actually the the had the most shelters deployed. There was a oh yeah, an entire division. 107 people got into fire shelters up in Montana. Um, just you know, shocking. And what. What came out of that for me, anyway, is that they they really, really worked, and and especially those that Butte and and Lake Mountain Fire, those were in many cases, I'm, I'm sure not across every different location that people were at, but in many cases, they certainly certainly uh, saved people from being injured. But I'm sure there would have been you know many fatalities as well. And as it as it is, you know, in the report, at least according to the report. Um, there really weren't any burn-related injuries associated with uh, the the Butte Fire in particular, or I, I believe the Lake Mountain Fire too, which is which is pretty incredible. Yeah. So to get back to to kind of fire shelters and and you know how they how they kind of came about through the lens of of these entrapment reports, and the first reference that I found was from a letter that the chief of the Forest Service wrote after. Uh, the Sundance Fire, which was in North Idaho in 1967. And it was an entrapment of a dozer operator and um, what I believe at the time was called a sector boss, but basically a division. Um, and they were out way, way ahead of the fire, right? I mean, miles. But it so happened that that day the, the fire ran something like 15 miles. Very unexpected. Um, and and so they were caught and and at that time fire shelters did exist but the belief was that uh, they were only really useful in very light fuels like grass and light brush and so they were only issued to crews who were fighting fires in that kind of fuel and so you didn't this was a big timber fire up in north idaho so nobody the the cash didn't even have fire shelters to issue to them um and in the attached to this report is a letter from the chief of the forest service that says even if in this case where they were maybe it would not have helped them they should at least have been given a chance to to try to use it right and that was in 1967 and it took 10 years of of more entrapments and more fatalities to finally get to a point where they became mandated across the board which was in 1976 and then so that was in 1976. All Forest Service firefighters, at least, were required to wear a fire shelter, no matter who the fire belonged to, so to speak. And then you have 10 years later, a little less than 10 years later, you have all of these huge entrapments, you know, yeah. dozens and dozens of people. And what's fascinating about it is that immediately in, in I mean, as a rule, in all of these reports, they say what's happening is wrong. <laughs> that, that it's we, the, the beginning of the shelter is also the beginning of the shelter stigma. Yeah, as soon as people actually yeah. started to really use them, they really focused hard on trying to stigmatize using them. I don't think, of course, they would put it in those terms. And I'm sure that, or I believe, they were worried that people were taking undue risk because they believed that they could because they had a fire shelter. Yeah. But, you know, I think the the result of that i think is pretty clear that there is this huge stigma around it that that we've been dealing with since then and some of the things that are said in these reports from the from the mid and late 80s are are again they're shocking you know yeah. the recommendation that there should be an 11th fire order saying that you can all, you should only use a fire shelter as a last resort 
And so it's kind of an interesting question. Like, is is a sh- is a fire shelter a piece of PPE like Nomex that that you should use if you think there's a possibility you might be burned or or that the air is not going to be breathable or you know uh, really significant ember fallout or something like that? Should you just err on the side of caution and use it, or should you treat it like a last resort? And I'm and almost like I'm only going to use this thing to save my life. And any other use of it is illegitimate, which is kind of the way that those reports are written. Yeah. That if you weren't, if it wasn't immediately life threatening, then you probably shouldn't have have used it. And it's interesting because if you can improve your conditions and you know prevent some some burns or get better air you know to protect your lungs or if you can improve your conditions it's like you put on a shroud to you know improve your conditions yeah, or you exactly. you know you do these things but but yeah that if you pop a shelter you know that stigma it's not about well <laughs> i wanted to improve my conditions you know right yeah it's it's really <laughs> pretty fascinating is it truly PPE. And if it is, then we need to change that narrative of last resort. It's like, no, I was improving my conditions, so I deployed my shelter um, and not feel this justification. Well, I didn't really think it was necessary. I, you know, Mm -hmm. because obviously the danger in that last resort is when do you cross the line from having plenty of time and then it's last resort and now you've squandered your time and can't get yourself a good spot to deploy your shelter. You don't have time to do the things you need to do to get your shelter a good seal, a good location, Mm -hmm. all of that. So yeah, that narrative of last resort leads you to, you know, precious seconds, you know, lost. Yeah, absolutely. And I th- you know, something that I didn't know about really at all until I started reading these was how common it is for um it to be necessary to remove one usually says one, but sometimes both gloves to to get the fire shelter open. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I know that they have been working on for decades and and it is better, but um it's but it's still there. And, and so you can read about that going back to the, I think the first time I saw it referenced was in 1987. Yeah, they talked about there being at the, at the entrapment site, there being multiple uh, like uh, right-handed gloves left, yeah. left in place because they couldn't manipulate opening the shelter. And that just carries on. And, and so like you said, if you're, if you're thinking, you know, okay, maybe I'll take it out of my pack and I'll hold it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'll take it out of its case and I'll hold it in this that that yeah. sort of soft plastic that it's in. Uh, you may get to a point where if you're in the situation where you actually do have the time, right? Um, where when you finally decide, okay, it, it is it is too hot, I need to use this thing, um, where all of a sudden now you realize you can't you need to take your gloves off to open it, and now the and now there's you know fire on and you and wind and, and all wind. the yeah exactly yeah and all that stuff yeah I, I think that and it and it's it's mentioned more you know in the last say ten years that people um, entrapment survivors say we need to look at you like training on this as not being sort of this extreme last resort kind of thing because you're, you're kind of setting your you can be setting yourself up to to sort of run fa- out of time fail yeah yeah what i i think that's a really interesting thing what you know based on your readings um specifically with with uh focus on fire shelters how would you change fire shelter training annually i mean we're all supposed to do it and you know we wear gloves or we try and visualize you know some people have a fan going mm-hmm. some people run uphill you know all kinds of things but based on an actual analysis of shelter deployments in our in our business how would you change the the training what would you recommend people do yeah, I mean, just you know, going by the words of 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 some of the survivors that are that are interviewed in these reports, you know, well, first of all, taking the taking the training seriously, right? I know that uh, uh, someone I work with on the Plumas, they they would uh, when he was a smoke jumper, they used to they used to try to do deployments behind the the DC three powered yeah. up, and 
um, you know, it's high, high wind, right? And it, yeah. it really gives and you noise. A, and yeah, very noisy, right, right, uncomfortable. And it gives you a sense of how difficult it might be. So, so there's, there's sort of that thing, which people have talked about, right? Using fans and that kind of thing. You know, this is, this was brought up, um, during, um, actually a previous podcast, uh, um, uh, on the bullfire, um, in Arizona. When do you get training? When do you talk about using a fire shelter as a, as a shield traveling, like moving with it? Yeah. There was a fire in 2002 where, uh, it's called the, uh, the Price Canyon fire in Utah. Um, where a group of smoke jumpers um, ended up being entrapped and um, escaping or, you know, a variety of, of different things. But there was uh, one fellow who um, used the fire shelter kind of as like a turtle shell. So he put his arms and legs through the straps and and um, with that on his back, you know, facing away from, from the oncoming heat, um, he dug himself out an area to deploy the shelter in. And, it, and it's a brilliant idea, right? And I and I didn't see that reference anywhere else. So I think probably, at least, you know, in, in my experience, um, I, I don't think I ever got enough practice. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of the, you go to you go to the refresher, you go out on the lawn, and you're good for the year, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's especially true of militia and um, maybe places with, that don't have as high of a fire load as well. Um, so it may be the case that there are there are places you know like like uh, behind a DC three right where where they do where they do more intensive kinds of training but you know anybody could find themselves in that situation and and so I think doing a doing a variety of of different not just not just different sort of um, environmental conditions but also what the what the goal is right yeah. because to me in my in my sort of mental model the goal is escape until a point where I realize I can't escape anymore, find a good place and then deploy it in that, you know, that, that prone position mm -hmm. wearing all my PPE, right? There are many, many deployments that don't look like that, mm -hmm. um, that were successful in some way, you know, yeah. prevented injury or, or whatever. So I think really training on that, um, more in, in in different ways in ways that look different um would be potentially very helpful yeah and maybe you know just increased dialogue if you're facilitating the training increased dialogue you know what what is in the realm of possibility or what are some considerations and and as you say listening to those survivor stories you know our our last podcast the mud fire you heard the the story from from Chris Fry, you know, uh, off the Angeles, uh, of what it was like for him and that decision making. And when time, you know, when things, the time wedge is closing, and you gotta you gotta take care of it. Or you know, the the South Canyon uh, video that Wolf Star put out several years ago, listening to Tony Petrelli and Mike Cooper, those jumpers that that deployed there, really taking those words and and thinking about them, facilitating a really good discussion rather than, like you said, yeah, popping your shelter in the, in the grass and going, cool, I, yeah. I'm, I'm done for the year, check that box and I'm moving on, give me my red card, you exactly. know, yeah. yeah. Shake, shaking it, somebody's outside shaking it. Yeah, because the more we can have considered these things, like, wow, what would I do given that scenario, the more we will be ready to make good decisions, critical thinking, you know, when we find ourselves in a decision, in a, in a space that we never thought we'd be in because nobody ever thinks, yeah, I'll probably deploy at some point. You know, <laughs> nobody thinks that, right? We right. all think it's never going to be me, never going to be me, right. but, but really thinking about it and, and, um, studying. And so it's cool that you've, uh, you know, mined through all of this and come to some good conclusions. Yeah, and I, I think that how I looked at fire shelters and and what I believed about entrapments has changed. You know, just in the past couple of months from doing this, uh, I again my sort of mental model of what an entrapment and shelter deployment looked like was the South Canyon fire, and that happens, right? That happens with some frequency, and 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 often those are those kinds of fires, um, those kinds of entrapments are the, are the ones that have a lot of people uh, associated with them, right? But the majority of, of instances of entrapment don't actually look like that, really. Yeah. They're more like a, a very sudden increase in um, 
in fire intensity um, or a very, very sudden change in direction that then, you know, oftentimes just immediately falls away again. And in that case, you may or may not have a chance to even get the fire shelter out. But but those are those are entrapments as well. And that's not something that I really ever thought about um, at all. And I think that's that's where um, sort of thinking of, of a fire shelter as something that could potentially be a shield, um, you know, could be could be very useful. And being ready, I guess, in your mind to not have to try to eliminate any stigma you might have to like what does it mean that, I'm, that I have to get my shelter out? I'm, I'm crossing a line. I'm, I'm stepping just immediately going for it the same way that you would, you know, raise your hand to your face to, to protect your face from heat. Right. Yeah. Same thing. Um, and those, those, there are, there are cases of those types of things happen. Yeah. So one thing I'm curious about, Eric, is, you know, you've gone through all of this, this work and it, I know it was sort of, I mean, it was a lot of work, a lot of reading and study, what is, uh, you know, is there a report that stands out to you that that people should get into the IRDB and check out now um, and and read and learn from? Is there something like that? Or what, you know, what what would you tell people? What did you learn that you think other people could learn? Yeah, no, that's a great question, uh, Kelly. Um, I think I would say that my number one answer would be look for your area. Look, so look for your state. So because you can select out in the IRDB, you can select out, um, you know, type of incident. So you can look for entrapment and then you can put in your state and just leave the rest blank and, and, and see what's there. See what's there. There's some states you're going to come up with a lot of a lot. Right. Because in my case, like I found out that there there were multiple entrapments um, directly in the area that I work in now. And I was only marginally aware of a couple of them and completely unaware of several of them. Yeah. Right. And so that, that would be my first recommendation is if it's an area that you're working in, especially if it's like your IA responsibility area, uh, be very behoove you to, to know what happened in those. Yeah. What's the history? Yeah. But, you know, just sort of generally speaking, I would say I really, really thought that the coal Canyon, uh, fire. So the 2011 in, in South Dakota, I really think that's a a very good report and really it delves into so many different things that in the past had had not been looked into and really takes seriously trying to figure out why the people who were involved thought that they were making the best decision that they could. I think it's I think that one's incredibly good. Um, so if there's only one, it would be that one. I also would highly recommend Pagami Creek, which is 2006. Um, in Minnesota. And that was one that involved um, folks that were, um, I believe, not primary firefighters, um, but were obviously red carded in that. And they were clearing campgrounds in the boundary waters. You know, very major fire run happened. And they ended up having to deploy shelters either in the water, deep water, cold, deep water, or on the little sandbar. That is also a very good report and, and goes into a lot of different human factors and, and thought processes, not just among them, but what was going on back at camp as well yeah. and the planning process and uh, sort of miscommunications or opportunities that could have been uh, taken that weren't um, in the planning process. That, that, one, that one is very good as well. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Just in closing, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> what is a personal lesson, you know, focusing on this, this huge deep dive you've done in these kinds of um, events? What's a personal lesson? What did you learn that you were going to immediately apply uh, throughout the rest of your career? Uh, I think <laughs> uh, I've been thinking about this and I, uh, I think so, again, you know, uh, I have multiple answers. So I have the, the, um, I'm going to come up with what are the scenarios in which I need to be wearing gloves, not have them attached to me, but actually have them on my hands because I realized that I've been in a lot of situations where I should have been wearing them and I wasn't right. Mm-hmm. 
that's one thing that's kind of a, a, a really easy sort of takeaway, right? But the but the the big thing for me is that it took reading this stuff and spending hours and hours with all of this to get to a point where it actually did sort of have the emotional weight that it would change behavior. I believe, I mean, I haven't been on a fire since I started this, so we'll see, I guess, but I, I do believe that, that it will change my behavior and it, it took time, but I, you know, there's some really hard things in, in some of these reports. And when you, when you read through those, you know, that's, that was somebody, right. And, and I think, like you said, you know, we, we, we need to, we honor these people by remembering and learning from them, right? Yeah. Um, whether they were injured or, or, or passed away. And the weight of sort of reading all of these and really diving into them is, for me, I think what it took to pass from kind of the, oh, that's interesting, yeah. to this is something that deeply connects with me enough to change my behavior. And that's a hard thing to get to, I think. But that, that's where you're going to be able to make a difference in yourself or, or with your crew or, or whoever is having, finding a way to make that connection so that it, it is truly meaningful to you and not just kind of an interesting part of history. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric Applin, for sitting down today with, with me and uh, for taking on this, this project. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. That was great. I got to say, dude, the original assignment was go through and check tagging. You pretty much blew it out of the water. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Eric for sharing his perspective. Keep in mind that this conversation only scratched the surface on the information that can be mined from studying incidents of the past. Also remember, it would be impossible to mention every entrapment incident that has occurred since 1910 in this one podcast. There are some amazing stories that you should check out if you never have, such as the story of Zuni hotshot Chrissy Boone, who used her shroud to protect her gloveless hands during her shelter deployment on the Holloway Fire in Oregon in 2012. Or some of my favorite lessons can be found in the FLA written about the Horse Park Fire Entrapment, which took place in Colorado in 2018. Those involved in this entrapment capture their story and share lessons that have immediate practical application for others. I hope this podcast has gotten you interested in visiting our website and IRDB to conduct your own study of our incident reports. Also, remember, we rely on you to send us your lessons. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Wildfire Lessons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, share, give us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wildfire Lessons. For more information, visit wildfirelessons.net. Music provided by second-generation smoke jumper Steve Baker, who always likes to keep one foot in the black. Thanks, Steve. Remember, we honor through learning.